Greetings to all of you. I want to welcome all of us at Center Street Church. Uh, we are in a sermon series from the Gospel of Matthew called Jesus and. And in this series, we are looking at the conversations Jesus has with diverse groups of people. Jesus did not just minister to the masses, but he knew the power of a conversation. How to motivate people in a smaller setting to embrace God's kingdom purposes. So Jesus spent significant time talking to individuals and small groups of people. Jesus wisely used his conversations to spiritually impact people's lives. Jesus spoke to doubters, the unrepentant, the ones who were weary, the legalists, the skeptics. And today, as we bring this series to a close, I'll talk to you about yet another group of people Jesus addresses. We're going to look at Jesus and his family. The four Gospels give us brief glimpses of the family of Jesus. Jesus must have lived with his family for the first 30 years of his life until he started his itinerant ministry. And the gospel accounts make this one thing very clear. Jesus' family was pretty ordinary. The Son of God who came down from heaven here to earth was born not into a prestigious, esteemed, highly respectable, pristine family. No. They were flawed, very much like yours and mine. In fact, they were a difficult family. Jesus struggled at times because they gave him a hard time. There were misunderstandings and conflicts. There were times they said not so nice things about Jesus. Believe it or not, Jesus had unbelieving family members like many of us do. And that is why he can relate with us the pain a number of us share as we deal with family members who don't hold the same convictions like we do. As a pastor, I often talk with Christians who have close family members who want nothing to do with Jesus. Now, I've seen parents' eyes welling up with tears as they talk about their grown-up children who have abandoned their childhood faith and walked far away from God. I talk to men and women whose spouses don't share the same faith and repeatedly reject their attempts to witness. I know of many people who are probably the only believers in their entire family. The truth is, we all have people close to us. Immediate family, extended family, friends, colleagues, people we care about who have not placed their faith in Jesus and it causes us great anguish. The famous 20th century evangelist Billy Sunday was quoted saying, The tragedy of my life is that although I have led thousands of people to Jesus Christ, my own sons are not saved. How do we deal with this challenge, this hurt that so many of us carry as we agonize over those we love 
who don't have the same life-giving relationship with Jesus that we do. The passage that we're going to look at today, Jesus shows us from his own example how to navigate through this challenge. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. And I want to ask you to stand as we read God's word together. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He, Jesus, replied to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we thank you that your word addresses aspects and areas of our life that we struggle in. And today, I especially want to pray for those who have family members who don't believe in you. I pray that today's message will bring them encouragement, that you will speak to all of us collectively, that you will increase our faith to trust you and believe in you to do great things in our own family. So come and minister, Lord, in the power of your Spirit. We ask this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, how many of you have non-Christian family members who think you are crazy or weird? Now, maybe there is a legit reason for that, but I'm talking about those who feel that way because of your faith in Christ. And they are offended that you give way too much time and resources to the church. They accuse you of living a boring life. And in some worst cases, they try to avoid you at all costs. And if that is true of you, I want you to know that you are in good company. For there are so many Christians, including Jesus, our Lord and Savior, who battled through the same challenge. So much so, Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his own household. Now, when Jesus was born in extraordinary, miraculous circumstances, his parents, Mary and Joseph, knew this was no ordinary child. The Gospels uh, don't tell us anything about Joseph's reactions, but it does say Mary pondered these things in her heart. For how could she ever deny the fact that she was just a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus? However, as you read the Gospels, especially the pre-crucifixion accounts of Jesus' ministry, there are clear indications that Jesus' own family did not esteem him, nor were they persuaded by his claims. It appears that Joseph had died by the time Jesus started his ministry. We only have references to Mary and some of the half-brothers and sisters of Jesus. 
in Mark chapter 6, Jesus preached in the synagogue in his own hometown. Mark records the reaction of the townsfolk of Nazareth, the little place Jesus grew up in. And this is what they said in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Isn't this the carpenter? Notice the expression of surprise. Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. From this account, we know that Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters, perhaps more. Joseph is no longer in the scene. He must have died. And as the oldest son, Jesus was responsible for providing for his family. Now, I wonder what it would have been like to have Jesus as your brother while you're growing up. Was that a good thing? In our own family, we are in a season where we are seeing intense-sibling rivalry in our home. Our oldest boy, Adarsh, is 10 years old, and our second oldest, Arav, is 7. And whatever the 10-year-old likes, the 7-year-old hates, because he doesn't want to follow the footsteps of his brother. He wants to chart his own course. The other day, we had a conversation about steaks. The 10-year-old said, I like my steak well done. And immediately, around the 7-year-old responded, I like my steak extra, extra rare. Well, that is sibling rivalry. Now, if Jesus was your brother when you were growing up, what is the one thing you would have heard over and over from your parents? Why can't you be more like Jesus? And I tell you, that's a lot of pressure. Twelve-year-old Jesus demonstrated exceptional wisdom beyond his years as he floored the religious authorities in the temple. Well, could uh, James and Jude live up to that expectation? As the sinless son of God, Jesus must have obeyed his parents, compliant with their instructions. Now, how hard was that for the rest of the siblings? And it appears they developed a resentment. Maybe that contributed to their unwillingness to follow Jesus. So here we have in our text in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to a people inside a house. Look at verse 46. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside. Now you need to underline the term. We're going to get there. Wanting to speak to him. So here is Jesus in someone's house. He's teaching, ministering to people. And we have a parallel passage in Mark chapter 3 that talks about the same incident where it says Jesus was teaching in this house and a large crowd had gathered. It was so crowded and so busy that Jesus and his disciples did not even have time to eat. They were ministering nonstop. Jesus had become an extremely popular figure, a celebrity. And throngs of people were following him everywhere he went. And do you know why Mary and her sons were there that day outside the house wanting to speak to Jesus? The answer will actually shock you. 
This is what a parallel passage in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 and 21 says. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. And when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. So that expresses a sense of force. They want to take charge of him, for they said he's out of his mind. Jesus is a bit kooky. We need to do something about it. See, Jesus lived in an honor-shame culture. And people in that time would hide the behavior of family members that would bring shame on the rest of the family. Now, the culture I grew up in is an honor-shame culture, so I know very well how this works. When a person has some form of mental illness, that is a taboo. And the family will do everything to hide that. So if people were to find out that someone had mental issues, that will bring shame on the whole family. So they try to mask it. It remains a secret hidden from the outside world. Uh, it is shocking that Jesus' family thought he had some form of mental illness, that he had gone off the deep end, developed a messianic complex, and they wanted to put a full stop to his ministry, take charge of him, forcibly remove him, and take him back home to Nazareth. So here they are waiting outside that house, not wanting to come inside where Jesus was teaching his followers. And Matthew, the gospel writer, is drawing a powerful contrast here. The biological family of Jesus was outside, or the spiritual family of Jesus was inside. Outside is a reference to those who are outside the kingdom, and inside is a reference to those who are part of the kingdom. So here is the clearest evidence that Jesus had unbelieving family members. Repeatedly, they misunderstood his claims, accused him, used harsh words against him. And sure enough, it would have been very, very hard for Jesus. Let me show you yet another instance where Something like this is being played out. Look at John chapter 7, verses 3 to 5. Jesus' brother said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one wants to become a public figure, acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers, that's John's commentary here, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. See, these were cynical words, dripping with sarcasm, spoken out of unbelief. You always wanted to be a hero, Jesus. Here's your chance. Go to the big city and do all of your super miracles so everyone will start following you. You will get the applause and a great crowd following. After all, isn't that what you really, really want? And these words were intended to be cutting. If you've heard critical words from your family members, those 
you love, who are close to you, ridicule your faith. It is one of the hardest things to experience. And if you have gone through this, or are you going through this right now? I want you to know Jesus identifies with your pain. He knows exactly how you feel. Not just because Jesus is an all-knowing God. He knows from experience what this really feels like. Jesus also heard hurtful words spoken by those who were closest to him. So Jesus' family stood outside that day wanting to speak to Jesus. They were concerned about his mental well-being. Now one person brings word to Jesus that his family is here to see him. So verse 47 says, Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. In a culture that had deep family loyalty and honoring your family is seen as one of the highest virtues, you would expect Jesus would stop everything and run to meet them. But Jesus knew why they were here, and he didn't do what was culturally expected of him. He didn't go out to meet them or give in to their demands. He didn't try to please them because Jesus was focused on his father's mission. Jesus never dishonored his family, for that would be wrong. And he did not force his convictions on his family either. He gave them the time and space. Now, at this point, his family was not spiritually ready to receive these truths. Sometimes that may be the best thing you can do to your family members who are critical of your faith. If you have shared the reason for the hope you have in Christ and your family continues to resist, don't argue with them. Don't try to convince them over and over. Maybe leave them alone for a season for God to prepare their hearts so they can become spiritually ready. See, our job is to pray and it is God's job to bring the heart transformation. So let your family see the beauty of Christ in you, the irresistible lifestyle that we are all called to emulate as Christians. That will have a far deeper impact on your family members. And also notice, Jesus did not allow his family to dictate the terms. He prioritized God first. He placed God's kingdom agenda over everything else. He didn't try to please his family and compromise God's call for his life. I have seen this over and over. When people prioritize their family over God, then they inevitably compromise and fail to live up to God's plans for their life. 
And I want us to pay careful attention to what Jesus is saying here in our text. These are powerful words. He replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus redefines family. When his biological family started to question his sanity and refused to believe in his claims, Jesus turned to his spiritual family. Jesus was pointing to his disciples. And I don't think he's referring just to the 12 disciples here, but he's pointing to the people in the crowd who were all his followers. And Jesus calls them his new family. They were his mother and brothers and sisters. Jesus found support in his spiritual family when his biological family let him down. Over the years, time and again, I've seen how true this is in the Christian community. People who have come to faith in Christ become part of a spiritual family. And interestingly, so many times their ties with the spiritual family become stronger than their ties with their own biological family. The term spiritual family itself is so countercultural. To think of someone outside of our biological family as family members is radical. And that is why we do a disservice when we refer to our Christian community as small groups. The term groups don't communicate the intimacy of language that we see in the New Testament. The church in the New Testament is defined as a spiritual family of believers. People of various backgrounds, cultures, economic standards, all becoming part of a spiritual family because of our common bond in Christ. So when an individual places their faith in Jesus Christ, they become part of God's own family. And consequently, they are part of the family of Christian believers. So family doesn't signify to me a shallow, superficial community that meets once in two weeks for a Bible study. It involves sharing of lives when we are able to carry one another's burdens, when we express care and concern, when we encourage and motivate one another, when we eat together, serve together. That to me is a better definition of a spiritual family. And that is how our community groups are to be like. Not cliche groups that are for select people, but we are to welcome and invite those who are new to the faith, those who are seeking to know more about God, and embrace them in our ever-growing spiritual family. 
I believe this is one of the main reasons why the church is growing in Asia and Africa and South America, in the global south, because they understand the power of community and they function like spiritual families. They leverage community to care for the new believers. So when people come to faith in Christ, they are not living their lives in isolation, but they are being warmly embraced into a spiritual family and discipled in community. And I've heard so many testimonies when biological families disown people for following Jesus, the spiritual family steps in and plays a huge role in filling the void. If Jesus himself sought comfort from his spiritual family, how much more we need the help and guidance of a spiritual family in our own spiritual journey. So if you're looking for a community where you can belong, that sense of spiritual family here at, at Center Street Church, this is a great time of the year as the fall ministry season starts to be plugged into such a community. Just contact our church and express your desire to be part of a spiritual family. And I know there are COVID-related restrictions going on today, but we are coming up with careful ways of how we can build community at all, all age levels. Let me give us this caution. While a number of you are watching our worship services online and find it very convenient and cozy to attend church, sitting in your living room, on your PJs, holding a coffee cup, Please don't stop there. Explore ways for you to be more involved and engaged and especially invest in community. You need it for your spiritual life. And we, as a church, want to help you find that deeper life-giving connections. Now let's go back to... Jesus' biological family. I want to finish with some words of hope here. Now pay attention. The unbelieving family of Jesus had such a skeptical attitude that it looked unlikely they would ever come to faith. But then, after the four Gospels, come to the book of Acts, the very first chapter. Jesus, who was crucified, rose gloriously from the dead. He ascended into heaven after giving the great commission to his disciples. Now, a few disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit in the upper room, praying together as a family. And who shows up? Look at Acts chapter 1, verse 14. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer, along with Mary the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. So after the resurrection, Mary and the brothers of Jesus are singled out as joining in prayer with the early Christians. Ah, 
clearly something had transformed. Their encounter with the risen Jesus had proved that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Their doubts and skepticism melted away, and a great transformation happened inside their heart. Mary, the mother of Jesus, and all of his brothers placed their faith in him. James, the half-brother of Jesus, goes on to become an influential leader in the early church. He even wrote a letter in the New Testament, the book of James. And this is what James writes about his brother in that letter. James chapter 2, verse 1. My dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? Look at that phrase, glorious Lord Jesus Christ, if you favor some people over others. So James, who ate with Jesus, slept with Jesus, grew up in a tiny little home in a tiny little village, who worked with Jesus in the family trade, now finally comes to acknowledge who Jesus really is. That Jesus is not just his big brother, but he's the Lord of heaven and earth who commands all authority. So he refers to Jesus as the glorious Lord. In order for you to call your brother glorious Lord, something incredible and dramatic need to take place on the inside. Another brother of Jesus, Jude, also plays an important role in the first century church. And there is a little letter in the New Testament credited to his name. What a change. People who mocked him, the ones who called him a lunatic, now worship him as Lord. And after over 30 years of Jesus praying, witnessing, and trusting God, he sees his own family come to faith. Jesus' family didn't remain on the outside. But they took the necessary steps to move to the inside and become part of God's kingdom. Isn't that a great encouragement? People who resist the gospel can soften. Our family members who are opposed to our faith can be transformed by Christ's love. Never, ever lose that hope. From the first century to the present, Jesus is committed to changing people's lives. There are no unlikely converts in this world. Now let me close with this testimony from my own life. When I came to faith in Christ from a Hindu family in India, my biological family was very disappointed. My mother was deeply hurt. She thought I had taken away the peace and joy from our home. And almost every night when I was a new Christian, there would be an argument. And she, my mom, would end up in tears. And all of a sudden, I saw right before my eyes, our peaceful family was going through a great deal of strife. 
And the hardest thing for me was I was the cause. I was responsible for that. My decision to follow Jesus was wrecking my family. And yet as the years have gone by, I look back today and I testify of the great things the Lord has done way beyond my imagination. For within a year, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. My sister also came to faith in Christ. And there was no turning back for her. She today is a vibrant, committed follower of Jesus. For years, my sister did a far better job than me in faithfully praying and gently witnessing to my family, especially my parents. And we are seeing fruit of all of that labor now. My father listens to every sermon I preach without fail. My mother, who was the most resistant to the gospel in my home, had a knee replacement surgery last year. They operated on both her knees at the same time. The recovery time was slow and hard, and she was struggling a lot. She became depressed. It was a dark time in her life, and we all were really concerned. Last year, one day I was with her on the phone. And my mother told me with a voice that was almost choking. I was struggling a lot. I hit rock bottom. Clearly, I was sinking. But I prayed to Jesus. And I want you to know, Jesus has lifted me. And I couldn't believe what I heard. Was this my mother speaking? Is this even possible? And over the last several months, I've seen her faith grow. She's now reading the Bible. And Jesus is clearly laying hold of her. If someone had told me 20 years ago this would happen, that my mother, who was so disappointed in my decision to follow Jesus, would testify praying to Jesus. I would have said, you're kidding me. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And yet, God made it happen. That is the God I serve. That is the Jesus we serve. He is the God of the impossible. So never, ever lose heart. What Jesus did for his own family, what Jesus has done in my family, he is well able to do in yours because our God is mighty to save. And at this time, I'm going to hand it over to our worship team as they are going to close with a powerful song declaring God's power to save. And as you're singing this song, Bring your own family members to the Lord, believing in Him, trusting Him, that He is well able to do the impossible.